Now, God created you body, soul, and spirit. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. And we've talked about how all throughout the course of your lifetime, you experience various events. Some of them may be traumatic for you. Some of them may have been very hurtful and painful. And so we likened it, you stuffing rocks into a backpack. Now, I had a little backpack for the last several weeks, but Norm Miller gave me his backpack. This, this puppy is about as big as I am, right? So this is probably more realistic about what you carry around on a day-in and day-out basis of the rocks that you've collected over the years that you have placed into your backpack that affects your everyday life. In other words, you can't get away from it. If you have not experienced healing, if you've not taken the time to um, allow the Lord to help you understand what has happened and how you can uh, heal from that, you just keep packing rocks in your backpack. And as we have said throughout the course of this series, everybody around you will feel the effects of what you put in here because you cannot contain toxic hurt into your um, soul, you can't contain it there. It, it leaks out, it spreads into your emotions, it spreads into your thoughts, it spreads into your words, your actions, day in and day out. And so everybody around you becomes the recipient of that toxicity that may be um, just kind of hovering within you. So um, today we're going to talk about, um, again, your thoughts and how they really do matter. So there is an outline in your bulletin. And I put very few fill-in-the-blanks because I didn't know if we'd have screens this morning. I do have one correction. We're not in 1 Kings 17. We're in 1 Samuel 17. So if you turn there for a moment uh, as we are spending some time here in this story between David and Goliath. Because here's what I'm certain by this time in this series. Um, you're thinking, Greg, um, you just don't understand. All right? I know that I need uh, to, to have healing take place in my soul and where there's just trauma and hurt and pain and I, I just can't seem to unload it. Now, you don't understand because I have, I've done everything I know how to do. I've prayed to God and asked God to take that away. I have listened to sermons. I have read books. I have talked to friends. I've even gone to counselors, but it just doesn't seem that it's happening for me. Uh, I've done everything humanly possible. And I, I, I don't know why, but it just seems like I just can't get over this or I just can't receive what it is you're talking about. And even though, watch this, even though I believe in God, and I do, I don't really think he can help. In fact, Greg, I think, I think this is the way God made me. And I just have to live with it. And so that is a very common lie that people believe, and remember, if you believe a lie as though it's truth, you're going to live it as though it's true, even though it is a lie. I can assure you, it is a lie of the enemy. This is not the way God created you. Um, God has a destiny for you that he wants you to live in, and what's, what blocks that is when we're failing to unload all the hurt and the pain and the turmoil of our past and present um, in order for God to to move us forward in, in our lives. And so I want to give you an example of this, just kind of help concrete this in our mind. Let's say, for example, and I'm going to say his name is Jeremy. Have we got any Jeremy's in here? Because I don't want to, you know. All right, so I'll use the name Jeremy. So here's Jeremy. Jeremy has been in church for a long, long time. In fact, for most of his life, he's been in church. But Jeremy is now in his mid-20s, and he's been struggling with stuff all of his life. 
And as a result of that, uh, he sits in church week after week knowing that he is struggling with pornography, he's struggling with alcoholism, he's struggling with um, just like, he'll sleep with anything that will have him. He's just struggling a lot in his life. And he sits in church, he feels bad, he feels guilt, he feels shameful, he feels as though he's not worthy of God's love, time, or attention, but yet he just keeps coming back, hoping that someday, some way, something's going to click for him and something's going to change. But this has been going on for a long, long time, and so now Jeremy has convinced himself that he can never overcome his addictions. And so he's heard sermons on God's love and healing and God's uh, freedom, but frankly, he's anything but free, and he's tried in the past to break these addictions on his own, only to become frustrated. It might work for a little while. He may have gotten by for a month or two or maybe even a little longer than that. But he finds himself lapsing right back into the same old ways of life, and it's just the same old cycle. So in his mind, uh, he is is unworthy of God's love. And again, he just feels shame and guilt and this sense of self-condemnation. Right, so he, And he knows this is going on inside of him, and he's fearful that somebody else is going to find out. Now, here's what I want you to know about most religious people. Most religious people do not feel free because they are caught in one of two traps. I call it the performance trap and the pretending trap. The performance trap is this, is that here's young Jeremy sitting in the church. He knows these things are going on in his mind. And so you begin to think and you begin to maintain Uh, a certain standard in your mind that you've got to live up to in order for God to love you and to bless you, right? Like, Like, I've set the bar in my mind what I must do for God in order to be acceptable to God. And uh, if I'm not living up to that, then I'm fearful that if I'm not meeting God's standard, that he's going to punish me, uh, he's going to send me to hell, Uh, all kinds of things start rolling around in our minds. And so you are always wondering to yourself, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Uh, Is God paying me back for something? And this kind of life leads to constant anxiety and just sheer exhaustion, quite frankly. And this is the religious cycle that many, many, many Religious people are in, right? This performance trap. One of the ways I know this is because people say things like, well, you know what? Um, The reason I left the faith is because I prayed to God for something, and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain, so therefore I'm out of there. Code for, I did all the right things. I performed in all the right ways. I went to church. I prayed. I read my Bible. I gave. I served. And God owed me, but when it was time for him to come through in payment, He didn't make it, and it let me down. Performance trap. Then there's also pretending trap. Pretending trap is simply that, well, okay, uh, I'm going to admit things on the inside are a lot like what I project them to be on the outside, and so you're going to pretend, right? You're going to spend your life, and you're going to come to church, and somebody says, well, how are you doing? And it's always, you know, fine, I'm blessed beyond measure, things couldn't be better, when you know inside you're an absolute mess. Somebody looked at your Facebook last night, they saw you're a mess, you come to church, you tell them everything's great. And for some of you, you know, husbands and wives, especially when you have small children, I know how it is getting ready in the morning, it's stressful, and you know, everybody's nerves are on end, and you, on the way to church you had this big blow-up fight with each other, you get on the parking lot, and so you come through the doors, a greeter says, how are you doing, glad to see you today, oh, wonderful, fine, blessed, couldn't be greater. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so we feel like we have to pretend 
Because if anybody really knew what was going on inside of me, I don't think they could handle it. And so rather than being a community of authenticity, we become a community of pretenders for fear that someone would find out what is really going on inside of us. So we're always trying to maintain an outward look while our inward impulses are actually out of control. Now, knowing this, we think to ourselves, you know what? There's just no way I can change, right? I've been there, (laughs) done that, tried that, didn't work. It's over. This is what I call a self-limiting belief. So let me go back to my example of Jeremy. He's, so if I were to say to Jeremy, Jeremy, you know what? I know in spite of your addictions and the coping mechanisms that you have developed in life, I believe God can heal you. I believe God can change you. I believe God can make your life different. And in his mind, he's thinking, no, no, been there, done that, doesn't work. I've tried it, tried everything. And so then we start talking a little bit about Jeremy's backpack and what the rocks are inside of here. And I've, I discover that Jeremy, his father died when he was six years old. And then his mother was married several times and st- after several stepfathers who were c- quite abusive to him, uh, he began to develop some, you know, s- some thoughts about himself and some limitations and he began to think he was, you know, unlovable and unworthy and nobody cared, and um, so this led to his coping mechanisms, and he brought these into his relationship with Christ, and that directly impacted you know, his life and his relationship with God. And so Jeremy just doesn't believe that God can change him, and it just won't happen. And here's why it won't happen, because Jeremy doesn't think it can happen. It's called self-limiting belief. Here's how this works. So for some of you, maybe you've had a dog and you wanted to keep it contained in your yard, but you didn't want to have to put up a fence, or maybe you couldn't put up a fence, you had an HOA, they forbid that, and so you put one of those underground invisible fences in, and so, uh, yeah, so you put that invisible fence, you bury it, and then you put a collar on that dog, and that you just kind of charge that thing up so when it crosses the invisible barrier, it gets like a shock, right? It's like the... Bermuda Triangle for doggies, right? You're you're contained within the triangle and you can't get out without getting shocked. And so over time, after this dog's gotten shocked several times, it learns fairly quickly, you know, if I cross this border, this, I'm getting shocked. I ain't crossing that thing anymore. So as time goes on, you don't even have to activate the fence anymore because in the mind of the dog, it's, it's limited, right? I cannot go outside this boundary, because if I do, I will get shocked, even though the electric fence is, underground fence is not even activated. In fact, the shock collar is not even on. The collar's just on the dog. And so the dog has a self-limiting belief that he is contained within this framework. That's exactly what happens to God's people, is that we've convinced ourselves, been there, done that, tried that, Therefore, your self-limiting belief is cannot happen, will not happen. I guess this is just the way it will always be. It's the way God made me. I run into this all the time. I've been pastoring for 30 years. I've talked to a lot of people. And you know what? This is exactly what your enemy wants you to believe, who is Satan. If he can keep you contained within his self-limiting belief, that cannot happen, won't happen, will not take place for you. He has got you. 
right where he wants you. And you will always be living under this self-limiting belief. That's a, a lie of the enemy that we have accepted as truth. And as long as we accept it as truth, we will live as though it were true. And you will choose then to live within the boundaries of the performance and the pretending trap. Christians are great at this. Spectacular. The truth is, you may have some very valid reasons for feeling the way that you do. And you, you do. You have gone through some things that nobody deserves to experience in life. And perhaps you're physically, verbally, sexually, emotionally abused. Maybe you have struggled to deal with a chronic illness or an irreparable physical problem. Sometimes people take advantage of you in many different ways. And so, yeah, but if you want to live in the context of God's destiny for you, you cannot use your past emotional wounds as an excuse for making poor choices today, right? That's never the way God has designed it for you. You may have deep scars from your emotional wounds, but you don't let your past determine your future. You can't do anything about what has happened to you in the past, but you have full control over choosing what you face and the way you face it in front of you. So this is going to require, this is going to require getting emotionally and mentally healthy. We've talked about the emotional side. We started on the mental side last week. And so I want to give you a couple more steps this week on the mental side and finish it up next week. Here's why this is so, so important. Is because, remember, this is your first big idea, fill in the blank. Your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thoughts. And if your dominant thoughts are that I'm just filled with guilt and shame and God doesn't love me, and I'm not worthy, and I can't change, and nothing's ever going to be different in my life, and, and on and on it goes. So you have all of these negative thoughts rolling inside of your mind. You can't have negative thoughts rolling inside of your mind, some 50, 60,000 thoughts a day, 90% of what you had yesterday, and your life move in a positive direction. Just can't happen. Because your thoughts is what is what directs your life more than anything else. There is a war that is raging in your mind. Your mind is a battlefield, and life is won or lost right here between your temples. That's where the battle is raging. Your enemy knows that. He knows that if he can control and manipulate how you think, he will be able to control and manipulate your entire life. Our thoughts determine our emotions. We feel exactly the way we think that develops into attitudes and actions and self-image. And so if you just dwell on depressing thoughts all day long, guess what? You can't help but be depressed, right? If you just dwell on gravitate towards negative thoughts all day, you can't help but gravitate towards negative people. Again, you get hurt, you suffer trauma, there's physical pain, there's emotional pain. You, your, your thought processes is you make an interpretation of that pain and most likely you will develop lie-based thinking because the enemy interjects in your life at that moment in time and he's going to set your thought processes in a pathway that's always going to default towards the negative side of things. Uh, so last week I, I gave you, a, you know, an audit test. Do you typically, typically think about uh, worry or peace or negative versus positive or Bad versus good, I mean, that, those are your default, default thoughts. That's the pathway that's been cut in the trenches of your, your memory banks. 
And so immediately it, it drops into your subconscious. So now, for example, as you know, my father left, me, left when I was young, and so there was that sense of rejection. That's the basis upon which, and I understand this, it is the platform upon which the enemy directs my life or seeks to, all right? So when you have a sense of direction, you have a sense of rejection, there's a sense of unworthiness and being unlovable and all of these things. And so if I'm constantly thinking that in my, my mind and on a scale of one to 10, I'm already pegged on a nine and somebody says something to me that I detect as a sense of rejection, whether they meant it like that or not, it does not matter. In my mind, that's what I'm hearing and therefore I'm shoved on a 10 and now I'm having all those feelings all over again, right? And so... I'm living on the basis of those feelings because, I watch this, I will, ha, I will take those feelings and put them in the driver's seat of my life and let them guide and direct my life because my life is going to move in the direction of my most dominant thoughts. That affects the way I feel. So when we come to David and Goliath, we see that Jesus, this battle, epic battle between David and Goliath is that Goliath is representative of the armies of the Philistines. Goliath is so like over nine feet tall. He's a giant of a man. I saw on uh, America's Got Talent, there was a guy on there the other night who was, um, what was he? He was seven foot nine, right? Seven foot nine. And when he stood beside everybody you know, else on the stage, they looked like they came up to here on this guy. Can you imagine? So Goliath was like two feet taller than that guy. This guy is mammoth in size. And so he's taunting the armies of Israel. They're scared to death to come out on the battlefield. The deal was, if you go on the battlefield, if you defeat Goliath, the Philistine armies will become your, your slaves, right? But on the other hand, if you lose the battle, then the Israel armies, you know, they're enslaved to the Philistines. So there is always a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. And so he's out there for 40 days. He comes out and taunts the armies of Israel saying, come on, bring somebody out here to take me on. So Jesse, uh, David's father, sent him to check on his brothers who were a part of that army and bringing them Lunchables. And so David shows up, and there's this, this, there, he's listening to this, this taunting by Goliath, and he's saying, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the very, the very God of Israel? And, and David's just kind of ripped about it. And so nobody's going. And he says, well, what do you receive if, if you're, and so there, there was, there were some rewards, you know, you Free from taxes, you get to marry the, the king's daughter. You might want to check her out before you took that one. But uh, you, there, there's some other, you know, benefits. But David didn't really care about any of that. He said, I'll take him on. I'll take him on. Well, that ticked off his oldest brother, Eliab, who said, well, we know you just come down here. You, you, just, you just got a heart that's just messed up anyways. You're just trying to make us look bad. And King Saul says to David, you can't, you can't defeat this guy. David says, listen. Uh, God in the past, as a shepherd, he's enabled me to take on a bear or a lion and all these things and defeat them. I'll take on this uncircumcised Philistine. You know the end of the story. That's exactly what he does. He kills Goliath, lops off his head, and uh, the rest is history. So here's the deal. David in the story is not you. Jesus is David in the story. Jesus is the one who came and destroyed the works of your enemy. Jesus says that very plainly. I came into the world to destroy the works of the enemy. Right? So Jesus has already taken down Goliath. And so 
you think, well, wait a minute now, Satan's still like, you know, he's still active. Yes, he's been defeated, but he's, he's been taken down, but he's not like dead yet, right? All right, so he's still active, but he's acted within a very limited scope. And if you are a follower of Jesus, watch this, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan has no more authority over you than what you're willing to let him have. None. Jesus already defeated him. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. He was resurrected from the grave. And therefore, Jesus said, now watch this, in the 23rd Psalm, Jesus says, I prepared a table before you, my follower, in the presence of your enemies. Who's your enemy? Well, Satan and his demonic beings. So here's the deal. It's a table for two. Stop inviting Satan to your table. Right? This is what... This is what this process is all about, is that we are going to take control back of our lives by taking control of our thoughts. Change your thoughts, you'll change your life. Until that happens, nothing is going to change for very long. And so we looked at the story of Goliath last week and said there are five you know, strongholds. And remember, a stronghold is a mental fortress from which Satan can operate in your life. There were five of them out of this story. The first one was that of fear. And so I'm... What would have happened if David had not taken on Goliath? What do you suppose would ultimately happen? He's been, he's been out there for 40 days, day, day after day, taunting the armies of Israel. They would have lived in fear for the rest of their lives, and they would have never walked in God's destiny for them, and they would have just continued to carry around their undefeated giants in their lives. Listen, their God had a destiny for them, and this wasn't it. You want to know why Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Because of fear, unbelief. Fear always, um, fear always uh, displays itself through unbelief. Do you remember what they said when they sent the spies in the land? There are giants in the land. We can't take them. When God clearly said, I'm giving you the land, you just need to go fight for it. Please understand this. When Joshua took the nation of Israel into the promised land, God said, everywhere your feet trods, I am giving you the land, but you must fight for it. Jesus, your David, has already taken back the property, the land, what the enemy has stolen, but you have to show up and fight for it. But fear will keep me from doing that if I'm not careful. My daughter was, oldest daughter was learning how to swim. I mean, she was really afraid of water. And, uh, you know, we had a couple in our, our church that had a, their own swimming pool. And so she's on the side and I'm in the pool. And like we're in the three feet end, okay? So Stacy's little and I'm saying, come on, just jump in dad's arms, jump in dad's arms. Now she's looking at me and she's thinking, well, you know, up to this point, he's been pretty reliable, but I'm just not sure if I can take that leap, that plunge. Now, here's what I knew. If she didn't take the leap off of that, off the side of that pool into my arms, she would have lived in fear of that for the rest of her life. She would have never known what it was like to cast herself into her father's arms and know that she was going to be caught. And she finally took the leap. And then the next one became easier and easier and easier. And it's like, Dad, get out of the way. I'm jumping in, man. I was like, I'm one head first. 
Right? So this is what's happening here. This is what happens in your life. Fear has cousins called anxiety and worry and stress and tension and all these other things. Faith is always the antidote to fear. When, David, when, when King Saul, Saul said to David, hey, um, you can't take this guy on, and David re- rehearsed how he delivered him from, God had delivered him from the hand of the, the lion and the bear, look very carefully in 17 verse 37 what David said. He said, it's the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from this Philistine. Who delivered him? The Lord. He had already put his trust in God before. He knew that God was more than adequate to take out this Philistine. Number two is the platform of rejection. Rejection has cousins like insecurity and low self-esteem, low self-worth. Rejection says... You're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not talented enough, you're, you're not wanted, and so on. And then there's comfort. Remember we talked about that. Comfort wants to stay safe and secure. Armies of Israel, they didn't want to, they didn't want to risk anything. They're, they could just go back to their tent and have lunch and take a nap, right? So they would get, they'd probably get back to their tents and, and kick back in their lazy boys, right? Notice, notice we call them lazy boys, not risky boys. Now, nobody wanted to risk anything and go out on the on the battlefield against Goliath. They just wanted to remain in comfort. The armies of Israel, watch this, they would never know nor experience what David came to know and what David came to experience because they refused to step out on the battlefield. Here's what most people do. When you're confronted with this is what you need to do to unload your backpack, you will either fight or you'll flight you'll just run from it for the rest of your lives. Whether it's fear-driven, whatever it might be, or you just don't want to deal with it, if you want to have victory, you've got to get into the battle. The next one was anger. It might be a, a, a platform for you. Um, it's rooted, remember, anger is a secondary emotion. It's always rooted in something else, like disappointment, frustration, whatever it might be, and then addiction. And so, you know, we can be addicted to anything that we don't think we can live without. So here's the steps of action. We said, I I challenge you this week to think about what is the stronghold that you battle with the most. And all you got to do is listen to your self-talk, right? So if you listen to your self-talk, it will very quickly bring to the surface the stronghold that you battle with in your life because you keep rolling that over and over in your mind. Do you know the Bible says that life and death is in the power of the tongue? That includes your self-talk, right? If all your... if the only thing spinning in your thought life are, are negative things, it's, it's going to kill you. It's going to take the life right out of you. And you're just going to get into this pretending, performing uh, track in, in your life, and nothing good comes from that. You're, you're going to think things like, well, you know, I'm never good enough. My, bat, my past is too bad. I'm not smart enough, talented enough. I can't trust anyone. And so your brain maps itself around those things, and that's not what God wants. God wants to what? Transform your life through the renewing of your mind. That's what Romans 12, 2 says. Don't be conformed to this world. Stop thinking like the world thinks. God wants to transform your life by the renewing of your mind because that's the only process by which that can happen. So I said the second thing was you want to take that thought captive. This is out of 2 Corinthians 10, which simply means write that thought down. It's amazing how it looks different if you put something on paper. 
Right, these are the things I'm struggling with. These are the strongholds I have in my thought processes. These are the negative things I'm thinking about myself. These are the negative conversations I have in my mind, and they're rolling over and over, and you start listing those things out. Another reason why you need to write it down is because you want to find a truth that combats the lie that you've been thinking all of your life. Right, this is so, so essential. Someone asked me once, um, Hey, Pastor Greg, would you pray for me that the spirit of lust would be, be removed from my life so I won't struggle with it anymore? <laughs> I said, no. He's like, what? That would require God removing your, your brain out of your body and putting a new one in there. God wants to do that, and it's, it's the process called a renewing of your mind, and the renewing of your mind is your responsibility. I had somebody just this week I was talking to him on the phone. Uh, he wanted me to pray for him. And so I prayed for him, and then he wanted this to pray for, and I prayed for that. This went on for like 15 minutes, and then finally he says, hey, would you, you're the pastor. Um, why don't you just keep calling me and giving me God's truth and, and renew my mind for me because that's what you're supposed to do. No, no, that's not my responsibility. You're responsible for renewing your mind. I can give you truth to help you in that process, but it, it is for you. And so this is why most counseling never works. Because you know what people want? People go into marriage counseling. Hey, just give me one quick one, two, three step. You know, we can map this out in about 30 minutes and get our life on track again. How well does that work for you? And so uh, couples try that and it doesn't work well at all because they've never changed the way they think about themselves, about God, about the relationship. You can run off to Hawaii and have a great time, wonderful time, and change your thoughts for a little bit. But then you come back and you're looking at the same old person in the same old scenario and the same old thought processes. It just doesn't work. Most people never change, and here's why. Because it takes work. It takes work. It doesn't happen automatically. It could. Sometimes there are areas of my life, a couple areas of my life, that God supernaturally delivered me from. But most of the stuff that I've had to deal with over th throughout the course of my life and I'm still dealing with is because I have to work at it, work at it, work at it, and I may take three steps forward and two steps back. So here's the third step in this process is you have to identify the source of your thoughts. Remember we talked about the fact that you may think up things on your own. Satan may be interjecting thoughts in your mind. Holy Spirit may be interjecting thoughts in your mind. How do you know whose is whose? Right? This is very, very important. Here's my little statement. When you identify the source, you can change the course of your life. All right? It, see, I think that it's not a question of so much where do my thoughts come from as it is to who do they come from. So I want to help you to map that out and kind of separate that. When you don't know where your thoughts are coming from, you just hang on to all of them and you accept them and take ownership as though they're your own. So when you try something and you fail, for example, and you say, I'm a failure, now you've just taken, you've identified yourself as a failure, that's your identity, that's what you're accepting that you are. That's not what God says. Now you may have tried something that didn't work, and you may have tried something and you failed, but it doesn't make you a failure. Right? You see the difference? See, if I fail, Satan's going to come along, what do you think he's going to interject in my thoughts? Now, Greg, you're, you're just a failure, man. You're just a loser. You, you never get anything right. Nothing ever works out when you try it, right? Because he, if, if he can beat me down with those thoughts, I'm done. So you're answering the question and identifying the source of who told you that, 
Remember Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden? All right, so um, Eve listened to the voice of Satan and responded by ignoring the boundaries that God had set up in an act of rebellion. So Adam and Eve, the Bible says, they, they immediately tried to cover up their sin by sowing fig leaves together and covering themselves and hiding in the garden. And then the Bible says that God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam responded by saying this, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And God responded by saying, who told you that? See, this is what God wants you to understand about the source. Who told you that? Who told you that you were unworthy of my love until some future point in time when you can get your life all cleaned up and together? Who told you that? Who told you you had to get on the treadmill of a performance trap in order to to acquire my love and my kindness and graciousness and, and grace in your life? Who told you that? Your condition can't be forgiven because of that one sin that you did and that you're still struggling with because you just haven't been able to overcome it yet. Who told you that the way you look is abnormal because of of a feature in your life that society deems as unattractive? Who told you you didn't have the skills and the gifts to pull pull off what it is I'm asking you and calling you to do? See, there are all kinds of questions that we have about ourselves. There are negative thoughts in our minds, and God would simply say to us, who told you that? Stop accepting what I did not tell you. I want you to put your minds and your thought on what is truth, on what I actually said, not on what I did not say. Satan wants you to focus your mind on what God did not say so that he just keeps you all tripped up and you're constantly in this performance trap, pretending trap, exhausted and and just like, okay, I'm done, it's over with, I, I give up. So there are three primary sources in your life of thoughts, you, Satan, and, and the Holy Spirit. So um, I don't have time to read the passages. You can read them later for yourself. But in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives a, a, a passage of Scripture where he says, listen, this is the works of the flesh. Now, the word flesh doesn't mean your physical body in that passage. It's the old thought processes, okay? It's the old lie-based thinking that's causing you to feel a certain way and to act a certain way. And he says, now here are the things of the Spirit and what happens when he's speaking and when he's having input and you're thinking his thoughts and on his truth. And he makes comparison. So we read that passage. This is not about um, losing your salvation, but seeing more of the presence and the activity of God in your life. So on your outline, you notice I said what Satan plant is always fear-based. What the Holy Spirit plants is always faith-based. So let's look at the comparison. Lust versus love. Lust is all about what can I get from somebody? What can I get from you, right? Love is about what can I give you? Love is a verb. Love is an action. It's based on, not solely on emotion. When I pledged my love to my wife on the day that we got married, I was making a covenant relationship. I was pledging my love. And so, you know, as I shared with you before, relationships go through different feelings. Like at first it's euphoric, you know, you just got these ooey gooey feelings and nobody can do anything wrong and you just love everything that each other do. And then you get married and then you begin to discover each other and then you begin to see the things you didn't like so well. And then you're just exhausted, right? You're exhausted trying to live with them and their attitude. And, and, and then if you're not careful over time, it's just endurance. Like I'm just going to endure the relationship. We're just going to stay together because of the kids. We're just going to stay together till they, you know, and then it's just 
Can I ever reach the stage of enjoyment with just sheer enjoyment of the relationship? Well, it depends on how you see love, right? So love is not an emotion. It is a decision. That's why Jesus could not command us to love someone because you can't command, you know, if it was just a, a, an emotion, you can't command an emotion. All right? I can't say to you, hey, love me. <laughs> You're like, I don't even like you. What are you talking about? So, but you can command an action. So, where are, you know, what, what, where are your thoughts? Where do they, this, these thoughts that you're having about yourself, where does it fall on this continuum? What about jealousy and envy versus joy? Jealousy and envy says, it says, God, God, you've never given me enough. You know, every, everybody I look at, they've got a better car, better job, they're, they're smarter, they're better looking. You are, you're never satisfied with what you have because you're always looking for something more and you see it in somebody else and so you become jealous and envious over what they have. You know, Satan loves to inject those kinds of things. You know, because he's, he's going to back that up with, yeah, you know, you know, God saw what you did yesterday and, and that's why he doesn't give you good stuff and that's why he always allows bad things happen to you. And so joy is on the opposite continuum of the continuum. Joy transcends our circumstances. Joy is, is, is that... I have joy because I know that God is always at work in all my circumstances. And if God sees to it that, you know, Greg, this really wouldn't be beneficial for you, then I take joy in that because I know that God has my best interest at heart. That's truth-based thinking. Division and factions versus peace. Division says, I'm right, you're wrong, end of discussion, (laughs) right? I'm the only person who gets it right. The enemy loves to work in churches and... uh, why not destroy the very thing that's precious to God? You know, unity. That's what the Holy Spirit's about, is unity in the body of Christ. He, Satan tr- tries to destroy that. The Holy Spirit wants unity. It doesn't mean that I don't speak truth in love, but it means I speak truth for the purpose of reconciliation, not for destruction, or to say I'm going to beat you down till you see it my way. See the difference? All right, impulsiveness versus patience. Impulsive. You know what impulsive people do? They make poor decisions, right? If you're impulsive, you go out and buy things impulsively, and then it's like, uh, crap, how am I going to pay for this? Uh, and uh, you make bad decisions. Here's, here's, what, here's what Satan does. He wants you to make a decision in a hurry, impulsively, because he knows it's not going to be the wisest or the best decision, as opposed to what's the Holy Spirit want? Patience. Man, wait for God's timing. It may be that God wants that for you, but the time just isn't right yet. And so we always, yeah, we, we want to be patient. And, and I know everybody says, don't pray for patience. No, God will be. Hostility versus kindness. You know, you, you get that one. People are hostile as opposed to being kind. Hatred versus goodness. Listen, self-hatred is never from God. Ever. If you're having thoughts of self-hatred, that has never come from your heavenly Father. Jesus died for you, not so that you could hate yourself, so that you would know that your new identity is you are a child of the living God, and he has no hatred towards you. Jesus took the wrath of God on your behalf on the cross at Calvary, and therefore he took it and he absorbed it all. God is not against you. God is for you. 
All right, so you goodness, man. Goodness is, is from the spirit. Self-ambition versus faithfulness. Self-ambition is what? All about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. So there's all kinds of self-ambition, like self-will instead of God's will. I, I, I want to be in charge. I don't want to let him be in charge. There's self-glory. I want to get the credit. I don't want God to get the credit. Self-gratification. I prioritize my life around my own pleasures and comforts and not the will of God. There's a self-righteousness. I'm trying to be good enough to distinguish myself and earn my acceptance for God. Self-sufficiency. You know, God, hey, I can take care of this. I don't need you. Right? Quarreling versus gentleness. You know, you're always upset at your sister because of what she said and what she did or your mom or your kids or whatever. And James says, you have not because you, what? You're, you're angry. You're quarreling because you're not getting what you want. And so what the Holy Spirit does in gentleness, and we'll talk about this next week, he wants, you, he wants to help you reframe things so that you see it from his perspective. And when you learn to do that, man, that is a deal breaker right there. Man, Chains begin to fall off of you and your mental processes when you learn how to reframe. We'll talk about how to do that next week. And then last, lustful pleasures versus self-control. Lustful pleasures here is not about sex. It's about this is what I want. This is what I have to have in order to be happy in life, to be satisfied in life, to bring fulfillment into my life. And self-control is about self-discipline. It's about um, not being impulsive. You heard about my battle with infomercials, right? Right, so not a lot of self-control there, so I got to give my credit cards to my wife. And... Now listen, in closing in this, in this message, when Satan is seeking to speak to you, he always comes at it from the basis of condemnation. He just wants you to feel bad about yourself. And he makes it so broad, there's nothing you can do about it. See, if he comes along and says, well, Greg, you're just a horrible person, what can I do about that? It's like, well, okay. Uh, and so he always paints it in broad generalities. It's always condemning. He, he doesn't want you to feel lifted up. He doesn't want you to feel good about yourself. He wants, to, he wants the self-condemnation. When the Holy Spirit is speaking, and it might even be over a sin issue, the Spirit speaks in conviction. He's very, he's very precise because I can do something about it. Hey, Greg, you were jealous today. Okay, well, thank you for pointing that out, man. I, I can do something about that. Or, Greg, you, you lusted today. Or, Greg, you, whatever it might be. Because I can repent of that. And remember, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action and it reminds me of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And so here's your uh, assignment for the week. Is that, it's just on the bottom of your outline. I want you to capture your thoughts, all right? Write them down. And then I want you to identify the source. So you can say, um, you know, you can put it as A and B, flesh and spirit, or Satan and God. But I, I want you to distinguish where are those thoughts coming from. Because watch this. The natural, normal default of human beings is always towards the negative, always towards the condemnation side, most of the time, unless you have trained your mind how to capture that thought, 
to reframe it, redirect it, so that you begin to cut the pathways that are healthy, the pathways that enable you to heal, the pathways that enable you to walk in God's destiny for your life. It can be done. It does take work. But once it's like trying to learn how to drive a stick shift. You remember when you first started? For those of you who learned, man, you had to keep thinking about, okay, push in clutch, let off gas. You, know, you, you thought about every move. Well, that's what it's going to feel like when you start this process. But what happens when you drive a stick shift for a long time? Man, it's second nature. And that's exactly what happens. When you learn how to capture your thoughts, bring them into obedience of Christ, and begin exchanging those negative things for the positive, reframe it, meditate on it, and begin living it, man, it becomes second nature, and all of a sudden things look totally different. Let's bow our heads together.